From the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, starting with verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading today? A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, starting with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus, the gospel of the Lord. It's the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> you may be seated. The gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Uh, so good to be with you all this week, uh, this Sunday, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, our last service before Christmas. Um, that's going to go down. All right. Um, I know that, praying for all of you today, because I know that 
We've got some of you are traveling, some of you are sticking around here, but we've got, I'm hearing a lot of sniffles around the place. I know they've got some sickness. There's something about our bodies, I think. Maybe this is just an old wives' tale, but whenever a lot of us work really, really hard throughout the week and then we allow ourselves to rest, often that's when sickness jumps on us. And so I'm hearing a bunch of you kind of say that's what's going on with you. So we'll be praying for healing, for a peaceful and good time with your families. I know there's lots that goes on with um, dynamics around the holidays. A lot of you are going to be around family, and I know that that creates wonderful memories and also tension at the same time. And it's like, no matter how great your family is, there's always kind of those dynamics. And so I want you to know your pastor is thinking about you this week and praying for you and um, just trusting that uh, we will all experience God's love and God's grace through this season in a real and true way. Um, So on this fourth Sunday of Advent, the light on our Advent wreath is growing. It's indicating we're getting closer to the source of our anticipation. Remember, we've talked about Advent as kind of like looking back, realizing God's presence here and looking forward all at the same time. So for Israel and for a weary humankind in the Bible, we see there's this longing for the good news of great joy that was met in the birth of the Messiah, Jesus who is also the Lord of the world. That was radical. The fact that this child who was born was not only Israel's Messiah, but actually proclaimed to be Lord of the world, that was something nobody was really expecting. And it happened in Christ. Today, we live in a world where where it's under the Lordship of Christ, our world is, but the Lordship has also in some way remained hidden. Christ is Lord over the world, but we don't always see it. It remains in hiddenness. So we also are weary. This Advent comes in a time for us where our country is perhaps more divided than it's ever been. Um, Hostilities run rampant. Everything that we do, it feels like, is pulled through the lens of our cultural team, whatever team that is. Meanwhile, we see the poor and the marginalized and the alien continue to suffer in our world that wars continue throughout the world. We live in a broken world. And all in the midst of this, the church cries out, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, return Lord Jesus. As Christians today, we remind ourselves of this story and the fact that the story of this child, this man who lived and died and rose again for us is a true story, is the true story even when we look around and we often see evidence that appears to point to the contrary. These big things can seem overwhelming. We talk about poverty and oppression and wars. This can be so overwhelming for us. And yet the Christians affirm that we have a sure hope, that we have a hope that is true. Hope is not just wishful thinking. I was thinking about the other day about... um, my daughter's really into Disney, of course. So the Disney narratives, you know, and, and some of them are wonderful and I think they're parodies of the greater story, but, but the Disney narrative is when you wish upon a star, right? So that it's wishing and longing for whatever, the prince to come or the, whatever, conquering your enemies, whatever the case would be. And, and that's wishful, that's fine. Wishful is fine, but, but our hope is actually sure because of the resurrection, that we know that it's rooted in something. So we know that God has not given up on the world and will not give up on the world. This week, I experienced a small thrill of hope in my life. Uh, Many of you know that Ashley has worked as a counselor for many years. When we moved here six and a half years ago, 
She had been licensed in Oklahoma as a counselor, but the way the counselor licenses work, there's no what they call reciprocity. So you can't just move to another state and continue to practice. You have to do the whole thing almost all over again. So she moved here and was like, oh my gosh, what, you know, I'm gonna have to do all this over again. And we were so thankful to find a place that hired her under the supervision of another licensed counselor so that she could continue to practice, which is wonderful. But it is just after everything we've gone through these past six and a half years, it has been really hard for her to actually be able to get her license while she's still been working, raising a little girl, all that kind of stuff. And so it's been, it's been a, a journey. Um, she has been in her employment under supervision of another counselor. She's paid at a lot lower rate than most counselors would be. And that's just kind of what we've embraced during this time. This past Wednesday, we received a letter stating that in March, she will officially be a licensed counselor in the state of Tennessee. Yeah, that's a great thing. Yes. And so I went to the mailbox. I went and got the mail when this happened. I saw the letter and I opened it up before I got to Ashley <laughs> because I knew she'd want me to screen it because it was bad news that I prepared for. So I opened it up and I looked at it and then I raced. I raced from the mailbox and I raced inside and I said, baby, you got this. You got, your license is coming in March. And to see her face, to see the tears, to see all the relief, to see everything happen was just this thrill of, I, it almost looked like there had been a weight on her shoulders that fell off. <laughs> It's just an amazing, beautiful, sheer joy that was indescribable. And I know this is like such a small reflection. The small event is such a small reflection of what happens when each of us and when our weary world hears the good news of Jesus, of forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation. That a weary world that's been carrying this thing on their shoulders a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Something about the Christian story is quite beautiful in that this story of redemption, which is a large scale cosmos changing story, also plays out in our real everyday lives in small ways. It is both big and small at the same time. In a sense, God does in the life of every Christian a microcosm of what he does for the whole world. So something in you is like cosmos shifting, like major world changing happens in you when you come to faith in Christ and through your life in Christ that is a microcosm of what God does for the whole world. It's this amazing thing. Our Isaiah text is an indication of this. If we read the Isaiah text in isolation from the rest of scripture, this is a prophecy that God gives about a young woman in Israel who will be with child. And some scholars say that it's a reminder that the birth and growth of every child is a little Emmanuel, is a little sign that God is with us. That every time a child is born, it's the sign of God hasn't given up on us. No matter how bad the world is, this child being born is this beautiful reflection that God hasn't given up. He's here. And I love that. I, I really like that. The text was given as a sign to the unbelieving King Ahaz. And it was a confusing situation because Ahaz wasn't faithful to Yahweh in any sense, but he was also a son of David. So he was in David's line, okay? And the, the prophecy is that God would rescue Judah from their threat to the north and would do so very soon. God will rescue you, Israel, very soon. And yet when we read this in light of the New Testament and all that was fulfilled, we see that in Israel. 
And yet read in light of the New Testament, this is a story about the redemption of the world in the birth of one specific child. Not just all children in general, which is a reflection of that, I think, but it is one child, one specific child who is called Emmanuel, God with us. When we anticipate Christ in our lives, we do so both cosmically and personally. The birth of Jesus means the overthrow of powers that be. It means the overthrow of oppressive rulers and corrupt systems. It means big things, systemic things are changed, are shaken up. And it also means, and it means resurrection from the dead. It means forgiveness of sins. It means a new world. It means all those things. And it also means, the birth of Christ also means that he hasn't given up on you. And you, and you, and you, and you. (laughs) You are part of that new creation. You are part of that new family. No matter how dark your circumstances are today, no matter what you've been told about your personality and what you lack, about your sin in your life, no matter what's been done to you, God is with you. As we step into Christmas, we live into this reality that God didn't give up on us in our sin, that we rebelled against his plans for creation, but he didn't give up. He stepped into our world, he took on human flesh, and he saved us. There's this old dead guy, an early church father named Gregory of Nazianzus, and he said it this way, He lost nothing in his divinity when he saved me, speaking of Jesus. When like a good physician, he stooped to my festering wounds. He was a mortal man, but he was also God. He was of the race of David, but Adam's creator. He who has no body clothed himself with flesh. He had a mother who nonetheless was a virgin, He who is without bounds bound himself with the cords of humanity. He was victim and high priest, yet he was God. He offered up his blood and cleansed the whole world. He was lifted up on the cross, but it was sin that was nailed to it. He became as one among the dead, but he rose from the dead, raising to life all so many who had died before him. On the one hand, There was the poverty of his humanity. On the other, the riches of his divinity. I love this. It's this beautiful reflection that somehow God stepped into our world and remained fully God. That he didn't give up his divinity. And yet he fully and completely and voluntarily and freely experienced our humanity completely. There is nothing we could experience in this life that he has not been present with. I think about this idea of empathy. And all true human empathy finds its origin and its home in this reality of Christ, I believe. Uh, Many of you know uh, who Brene Brown is. She's perhaps the leader in the field of studying empathy. And and she says that this empathy is the skill set to bring compassion alive. Empathy is the skill set to bring compassion alive. Empathy is how to communicate deep love for people so that they know that they're not alone. Empathy is not feeling for someone. Ooh, I feel for you. No, it is feeling with them. Empathy is a vulnerable choice. In order to connect with you, I have to connect with something within myself that knows that feeling, knows what you're experiencing. 
Empathy is recognizing that someone is at the bottom of a hole and joining them and saying, I've been here before and it's tough. That's empathy. Sympathy is something different. Sympathy is somebody's at the bottom of a hole and you look down and you say, ooh, it's bad, huh? Do you want anything? You want a sandwich? That's sympathy. There's a distance. There's nothing necessarily wrong with sympathy, but it's not empathy. Empathy is I'm in this with you. I think we all know that feeling of someone who really cares, who really tries to step into our situation and express concern, right? And I believe empathy is the kind of thing that changes the world, changes everything. It's my hope that we might be a community of empathy where we respond to the vulnerability of our brother or sister, not just with sympathy, with a detached sense, but with true empathy, true, what we might say, incarnational love that says, I'm in this with you. At the beginning of Romans, our Romans text today, Paul describes God's story and by extension, the identity of God's people, because there are people who have been identified by a story. And Paul says, okay, here's the story I'm preaching. And I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ, he says. I'm called apart, I'm, I'm set apart, I'm called to tell this story. And he gives like, this story has an origin. It's an origin story. It's been promised beforehand through the holy prophets of scripture, Paul says. This is the story of God's son. He was descended from the house of David, but also declared to be the son of God. He rose from the dead. And Paul says, through him, we've received grace and mission. Grace and mission. And in all of this mission, the Gentiles have been brought into the story. This was especially significant for Paul's churches because if you can picture like in modern day, maybe um, if we had two groups of people, two kind of different ethnicities that all carried completely different baggage and backgrounds with them into the story of Jesus. And there's kind of some natural conflict that comes with all of that. That's really the background of the whole New Testament. Jews and Gentiles coming together in churches, trying to figure out how do we even sit down and eat together? How do we share at the hospitality table and stuff that we should get? Because we all eat different things, much less how do we live in community with one another? So that's what's going on here. So Paul says, this story of Israel, the story of David, isn't just a story for one family or one ethnicity. It's for everyone. And Paul makes it clear, this includes you. Now, you guys can choose to believe me on this or not when I keep saying over and over again that what we do here on Sunday mornings and what God does in our hearts and in our lives matters in the world. It's an audacious statement to say that. I mean, it can be tempting sometimes to go, like, what is this thing that we do if a few of us gather together in this rented space on the south side of downtown once a week? Like, does that actually do anything? Is it meaningful to us? Well, Paul keeps saying and keeps telling these little house churches in Rome that they matter, that they are the culmination of God's story, that they're the outgrowing of God's story. And if God works in these little house churches full of fractional Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to eat and serve and live together, I have to believe God is also doing the same thing in a little church plant meeting in a catering company on the south side of downtown Nashville in 2019. I have to believe that, that we are the outgrowth of God's story, that that's who we are. And think about it. It really makes sense if you think about the Christmas story, right? 
The Christian story is not about the center of empires. It's not. It's about babies born in caves on the edge of empires. In God's kingdom, the cosmic, the world-shaking happens in the small, the forgotten, and on the margins. And then Paul says to this church that is the representative and the fruit of this story, which God has weaved together, he says these words. He gives this whole introduction and he says, uh, you're this and this is God's story and this is how it happened and this is the origin story. And then he says, to you, grace and peace. There's a sacredness to everyday life in the church. I believe that. At sacrament, we have fun. We celebrate, we joke around. Our, we hold our liturgy, but we hold our liturgy somewhat loosely and we laugh when we fumble through it at times. But we're not flippant about what God's doing here. It's sacred. The proclamation of word and sacrament no matter the size of the crowd or the excellence of the presentation, that stuff is sacred. It matters. God is with us. In our gospel text, we hear Matthew's version of part of the story of Christ's birth. Matthew, it's interesting, Matthew tends to tell from Joseph's perspective a little bit more. Luke tells from Mary's perspective. In fact, we think that Luke, I think that Luke uh, may have interviewed Mary herself because we have a lot of really personal details about Jesus's birth. But in Matthew's gospel, we get a bit more of Joseph's perspective. Much has been said about Mary and Joseph's situation. You're gonna hear a lot of stuff about it around this time. She was with child and a child, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. These two, Mary and Joseph, are betrothed to be married. In other words, they're engaged, roughly. It tells us that Joseph was faithful to the law. Okay, so Joseph is a faithful Jewish person. To Joseph and to any onlooker, what's happened with Mary appears to be adultery on Mary's part. I mean, that's what it looks like here. Joseph knows how babies are born, okay? So if anybody tells you that just, well, they didn't have modern science back then, so they had to create mythology to come up with kind of how babies came into the world. They knew how babies were born in the first century, okay? That they were clear about that, right? So Joseph thinks he needs to divorce her, but he wants to do so quietly. Well, then the, the angel then appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, don't be afraid, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Then the angel quotes our Isaiah passage. Okay, so we got this passage in Isaiah and then in Matthew's gospel, the angel quotes this passage in Isaiah. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. I wanna talk for a second about Joseph's role in this story because it's really interesting. And it's one that I've wrestled with a lot. In fact, in my ordination recently, a really good friend of mine who is a friar, which a friar is kind of like a monk, except they work a real job. That's basically what a friar is. And he, uh, he, at my ordination, he sent me an icon of Joseph and the baby Jesus. And he didn't know, I, I don't think, I don't think we'd had these kind of conversations that Joseph has been a really important figure in my devotional life um, throughout these past um, quite a few years. Um, in our family, when we first moved towards considering adoption of Lucy, 
I was nervous. I was apprehensive. Ashley was great. She had a clear compass and moved forward, but I was kind of scared. Um, I was scared about could I bond with a child the same way, an adopted child, the same way that I could a biological child. It was my question. Isn't there something kind of natural there that people have and would we be missing that? That all feels really silly now, but, um, but I wondered how all that worked. But I remember my grandmother, when she heard about what we were doing, she sent me a card with the story of Joseph and reminded me that Joseph is really the biblical figure of the adoptive father. Okay. God does something in families, whether biological or adoptive, whatever, that is hard to describe. Um, when Lucy was born, it was love at first sight for me. <laughs> and maybe this could be said of Joseph and Jesus, I don't know. But here's the thing about Joseph. Joseph did literally nothing in this story. Think about it. He did nothing, okay? He was not involved in any way with the birth of Jesus. The birth of Christ came to Joseph as it came to the world, an unexpected shock, okay? Though nothing like the birth of Jesus, I can definitely say that my posture towards Lucy's birth was just one of receiving. I'm just here, right? Like, I'm not doing anything of trusting God's work in our family and trying to be faithful with this person God has given to us to nurture and to love. And I think about Joseph's situation. Karl Barth uh, was one of the, most people say was the leading theologian of the 20th century. And he said this of Jesus, the male has nothing to do with his birth. He's being blunt here. What is involved here is, if you like, a divine act of judgment To what is to begin here, man is to contribute nothing by his action and initiative. Man is not simply excluded, for the virgin is there, but the male, (laughs) as the specific agent of human action and history, with his responsibility for directing the human species, must now retire to the background (laughs) as the powerless figure, Joseph. Why? Why is this the case? Well, I think this image with Joseph and Jesus shows us something about power. In the ancient world, the male was the driver of the world, the driver of society, at least from a surface level perspective. Of course, there were amazing women who did amazing things then as there are now, but the way people viewed power was through the lens of what men, what male people did, the decisions they made, the wars that they won. Again, Bart says, God did not choose man in his pride and defiance, but man in his weakness and humility. Not man in his historical role, but man in the weakness of his nature as represented by woman, the human creature who can confront God only with the words, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it unto me according as thou hast said. Such is human cooperation in this matter And then Bart says that and only that. Now there's some problematic things about how Bart says this. And he says, women represent the weakness of humanity and we would not say anything like that. But in this society, that's kind of how they saw it, right? So basically what God does in the incarnation is he flips power upside down. He goes to the places that are seen as the most weak, right? And he uses that. And the things that are the most strong, those things have to retire to the background, (laughs) because it's an act of God, it's not an act of man. This is so critical. God chose us, but he chose us not because of our strength or accomplishments. He chose us in our weakness. 
The way God chooses to work is to flip the script. Not emperors, but babies and teenage moms. Not palaces, but caves or stables is how we've heard the story, but we think it was more likely a cave. Not chariots, but donkeys. The way that the human race has always gone about power, that's been turned on its head. This is what Bart means by judgment. This is an act of God working in human weakness, not man working in his own strength. It's not those with power who run things any longer. It is the God who is the Lord of all. Now, what does that mean we do? Like, okay, is everything God's action? Do we have any role in this? Well, of course there's a human role in this. But the human role is most specifically illustrated in Mary's response in Luke's gospel. We see her respond in obedience, but also here in Joseph. The human role is obedience, just to obey. Mary obeyed what the angel had said to her. Here, Joseph obeyed. Now, I think it would be hard for Joseph not to obey. I mean, if if an angel appears to you and says, hey, this is what you're going to do, I think it'd be hard to not say yes to that. But he did, he obeyed. And in a sense, Mary and Joseph become a new kind of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given everything, and yet in the face of temptation, they chose to rebel. Mary and Joseph come to the table with nothing, backs against the wall, and yet they respond with obedience. Obedience is not a way of earning God's love or God's grace. It is a response to grace. And this is why I believe the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important. It's common today to mock the doctrine of the virgin birth, to assume it reflects a time when people didn't understand science, had a negative view of sex, whatever it is. And certainly, sometimes it's taught in strange ways in certain corners of the church. And I think that may be part of the reason, especially this myth that Mary stayed a virgin forever. The Bible doesn't ever say that at all. We have no indication of that. But the virgin birth communicates that the incarnation was an act of God, not an act of human beings. We did nothing to make that happen. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And in many ways, the doctrine of the virgin birth itself is something that we have to receive as grace rather than fully grasp. None of us are going to be able to sit down and scientifically explain how the virgin birth happened, ever. No matter how hard we try, we receive it as grace. This is something that God has done. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And we're not just called to look at this one story and believe it on account of this one text. We're called to look at the rest of the life of Jesus and ask, does this kind of thing, something like the virgin birth, make sense in the context of the rest of his life? As N.T. Wright asks, does the rest of the story and the impact of Jesus on the world and countless individuals within it ever since make it more or less likely that he was indeed conceived by a special act of the Holy Spirit? The beauty of Emmanuel, of God with us, is that God is active with us. Our God is not a God who lives far away and decides every once in a while to dip his toe in the waters of humanity and does so every once in a while. No, he is always active. He's always with us. And Matthew wants us to know this. 
He begins his gospel with the story of God with us, this story right here, that this is Emmanuel, this one who is to be born is God with us. And then he ends his gospel, chapter 28, 20, by saying to his disciples that he will be with them to the very end of the age. Our God is a with us God, always and forever. And his witness is not dependent on how well we perform for him or for others. His witness is not dependent on whether we pray the right way or worship correctly. His witness is an act of grace because he loves you. He wasn't manipulated into this. He chose rescue. He chose adoption. He chose restoration with the world, yes, but also with you. All right, as we close today, Where in your life do you feel like you've come to the end of your rope? Where do you see only your weakness and not your strength? Some of you, I know, some of in our community have faced incredible health challenges recently. Some are facing vocational dilemmas. What do do I do now with my life? Some are struggling with difficulties in the family. I don't know what to do with this family member. I don't know what my posture should be here. You're anticipating in this season, you're anticipating God's miraculous presence even when you can't see. Sometimes when we get in those situations, what we do is we come up quickly with human solutions to our problems. In desperation, we follow what we think is the only answer. Well, I guess I'm just gonna have to do this. I guess I have to do this. Joseph thought divorcing her quietly was that answer. That it was, well, I guess I have to divorce her quietly because that's just how things work. He didn't leave any room for what God wanted to do. This story reminds us that the world hinges on the act of God, not on our actions. God is with us. You are not alone. And God doesn't look, with, look at you with sympathy. Oh, that's tough. Sorry about your sin and your shame and all that stuff. I'm sorry. Do you want a sandwich? Can I help you with something? No, he's with you in the midst of that pain. He's hurting with you. I believe that the incarnation reveals to us things like God cries with us. When we are by ourselves and in tears and we don't know where to turn, God is with us in that. That God gets angry alongside us. My favorite image sometimes to think about is when I get angry at God, I love, um, I watched that Mr. Rogers movie recently and he always talks about what to do with the mad that you feel. And one of his things when he got mad was bang the lowest notes of the keyboard. So he's this really like calm and meek and mild guy. And then all every once in a while he's playing at the piano and then he'd go dun, 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 like really loud, right? And I picture that like when we get angry with God, that he's actually angry at God with us. <laughs> what? that he's with us in that, that he feels that. God gets frustrated when frustrating things happen to us. He's really there. So what do we do? If it's all God's action and it's not our action, what do we do? Simple faithfulness. Keep going. Keep listening for his voice. Respond to his grace. Incarnation changed the world and it still does. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you didn't give up on us. Thank you that you are God with us, that you're near to us, that this wasn't something you were manipulated into, but that you chose. Lord, we know that that changed our lives. It 
has bestowed on us forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. That your lordship is present in the world, even in times that we can't see it. But Lord, we we pray now that as you send us out in mission, as your community in the world, as your reflection, as this sacred presence of who you are, Lord, our desire is really to show that incarnation to our neighbor, to our brothers and sisters, to our family, to those who we know and those who we don't know. We trust in you. Thank you again for not giving up on us, for not remaining far away, for drawing close. We trust in you and your action, not on our own actions this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.